Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you, people, I uh, I didn't go to the gym for three weeks because I was sick. I had a respiratory thing, but I, I went back to the gym, and I was expecting it to be packed because you know how everyone, it's, there's two things that get packed in LA on the first of the year. Stand-up comedy stages because everyone sits there and goes, a New Year's resolution is to do comedy. So, and I don't really go out and perform anymore, but I see it on Facebook. People are going, these open mics are just packed and packed and there's nothing worse than going to an open mic packed with people who can't do comedy I know they have to start somewhere but if you sit there and you want to look you know because you want to support but when you see like 87 acts and like not one of them has ever been on stage it's sort of scary and the gym's the other thing but I went to the gym the other day and I'm, I'm just I'm just doing cardio this year I'm not I'm not really going to work out I'm I'm 51 I'm not going to get big arms I know that I have, I have pipe cleaner arms I'm fine with that as long as I just don't look fat you know because Joanne's in great shape because she works out five days a week so I, I just want to look like you know so I'm going to look good next to my girlfriend but I went to the gym and it was empty and I couldn't believe it and I was so happy because I'm expecting it to be packed and I think because I went at like 9 in the morning or 9.15 in the morning it was empty but it's such a good feeling when you can get on machines because I'm one of those people that if I walk in I either just do the treadmill or the bike and if I walk in and they're all taken I'll just leave and I'll go home and I'll say I'm going to go back later and I won't so anyway that's all. So I hope you guys had a good New Year. And uh, my guest today, I'm going to get it right, is Suzanne Huang. Did I get it right? Perfect. See that? And now, that now, fantastic. And thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So now, now, are you? Do you go to the gym? Are you one of those people that goes to the gym? I've joined many gyms in my lifetime and then never gone. Okay. So I've ended up <laughs> buying all the equipment that I need and having it in my house so that I might actually exercise. And on and off, I've had different times when I've been able to afford a personal trainer. To come over, but I have mats to, so I can stretch. I have an exercise ball. I have free weights. I have resistance bands. You know, and, I, you, I, you, I, you, and you, I have a mini trampoline too. That's my favorite thing. Do you know how good that is for you? Those things. Well, now, okay, the mini trampoline is an indoor trampoline. Yes. It's not, okay, so now, and it's just about the size of uh, I don't know. It's about six feet in diameter. See, maybe? for me, I'm sort of. I'm not, I'm not clumsy. My girlfriend says I'm really clumsy, but for me, I'm afraid like I would like fall off it because it's just it's so small. I mean, I, like like women can do that. Like you guys have so much more agile than us. Men are just we're dopes. What are you I, talking I, about? There's Olympic gymnasts oh, who would never yeah. fall off of that. Yeah, well, there are gymnasts, men. but men. I'm saying, but men though. So now, how is it? Just you just bounce up and down, or is there exercises you do on it? There's different things you can do on it. There's uh, I like to do it to music because it's more fun. But jumping up and down on a trampoline is fun. Fun to me it makes me feel like I'm a little kid jumping up and down on a bed and so I will actually do it because it's fun to me it feels carefree and childlike to jump up and down on a trampoline see that's yeah that is because jumping on a bed was great we used to jump on the couch and I remember like we would just run and jump on the couch and I remember sometimes I would miss and I would hit like the wood and I get like a bruise and looking back my mom and dad used to say you know when I went to school I mean back then there wasn't a lot of you know child abuse but people probably thought the Cooper kid's getting beaten he's getting beaten but he's actually just falling down or when you check into a hotel room don't you ever jump up and down on the bed because you're not supposed to it feels yeah, like something you're not supposed to do I, I don't jump up and down because when I did stand up comedy I was always on the road and I was like I didn't even want to jump up and down on the bed because I was like you know what even when you were little and you first went to a hotel oh, room of course yeah right that's what I'm talking about I was the youngest. They put me on a cot, so you can't jump up and down on a cot. But there's something about you're not supposed to jump up and down on the couch or on the bed, and this is, so it feels like something fun that you're not supposed to do. And it's probably very good exercise. It's so good for you. It's good for the lymphatic system. It's good to get your blood moving. It's good for your immune system. It's just really good thing to do. That's good. So now now you're from Arlington, Virginia originally. Well, I was born there, but I grew up in the Reston area, which okay. is close to Washington, D.C. But I'm a Navy brat, so my dad was an engineer for the Navy, so we moved around a lot. I went to probably seven different elementary schools. We moved to San Francisco, Honolulu, Cambridge, Massachusetts, back to Virginia, and then I went to college in Connecticut, grad school in Rhode Island, lived in Boston for six years, New York City for six years, and I've been in L.A. since 98, so 16 years. What's that like? I always wonder, like, being a kid, going to, like, so many different schools. I mean, because, you know, when I where I grew up, we went to elementary school, and then there was three junior schools, and then, you know, two, and then two went to East, my school, Cherry Hill East, and the other Cherry Hill West. But you would be with kids, you know, for your whole life. I mean, I have a friend I'm friends with still to this day. I've known since first grade. I mean, that's I'm 51, so that's 
That's 45 years. Yeah. For you, it must be hard to just to adjust because you're always the new kid. And, and we always, you always were skept- not skeptical of the new kid, but the new kid always had to prove themselves. Well, I think that one of the reasons that I'm in the entertainment industry is because of that upbringing. And you might find that there are a lot of military brats that end up being actors okay. because think about it. When you're the new kid in school, it's either sink or swim. You either have to make friends very easily and become the mayor of the room, or you'll never have any friends. And so I chose the former. So I would make I would walk into a room and have to make friends really easily and be very social and make it one big happy family. That's exactly what the audition process is. When you walk into an audition room, it's like being the new kid in school. Right. And if you're good at that, then you're good at auditions. So... I I know that most people resist change at all costs and want to stay safe and have things be familiar. And military brats, at least me, I don't resist change. In fact, I'm addicted to change. I embrace change. I want change. I get bored very easily. So when I first moved to L.A., the longest I had ever lived anywhere was six years. And after six years in L.A., I started to get fancy, like, I got to get out of here. But I, I think that it makes me somebody who loves adventure and new experiences. I think it really broadened my perspective on human nature to have lived in so many different places. But it did make it so that until maybe the last 15 years, I I really didn't have deep friendships because why should I bother? Because I'm just going to be leaving soon. So now that I've been in LA for this long, I have some amazing friends. See, that's good. Now, I got to ask you now, because you're in this entertainment business, but I mean, you're, you know, I look at your resume, you know, you, you graduate, you know, Yale. Okay, you're an Ivy Leaguer with psychology, mm-hmm. and then you get your master's and Brown, mm-hmm. another Ivy League people. Another, so she's, she's like one of those people that you go, man, you know, what, what's two Ivy Leagues? Like, like she's a type, like if, if you were friends with her, your parents would always say, oh, you're not like Suzanne. She got the two Ivy League schools. Oh, you only went to, you know, a junior college or something like that. <laughs> now, and, you, and also in psychology, your master's. Mm-hmm. Now, what made you, as well, as a kid, you 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 said you always felt like you were wrong because you were a new kid in town. Did mm-hmm. you want to perform as a kid or did you want to go into psychology? Because it's a very a very mm-hmm. weird path. N- neither. I-, I performed just for fun. I-, I would sing and dance and act in little plays and skits in elementary school and junior high school and high school. But it was never, you know, in the Korean handbook, you don't pretend for a living, okay. right? Your doctor, lawyer, engineer, professor are sort of the four accepted professions, right? So... When I got to Yale, I thought I was going to be a math major because I was really good at math and it came easily to me. But when I got there, I looked through the course book, I think it was called the Blue Book, of all the descriptions of all the different courses. And I was circling things that interested me. And when I got to the psychology section, I found myself circling every single class. And the first math class I took at Yale was actually terrible. I thought the professor was awful. And every psychology class that I would sit in on to see if I wanted to take it fascinated me. So my major switched to psychology. And I was going to be a psychology professor. My goal was to get a degree in psychology and then go on to be a professor. Which that is sort of like performing. Because I mean, we think about That's it. That's true. I mean, cause Teaching I a, is performing. Yeah, I had a teacher of a, a psychology professor in college named Mr. Miley, Dr. Miley. And he had this big, I remember he had like this big fro and these glasses. And this is like in 85. You know, no one had like gray fros, but he just looked so eccentric. <laughs> I, so I went to a small school in New Jersey. It was a, a liberal arts school and it was in the middle of Pine Barren. So a lot of the professors were sort of like quirky, you know, before quirky was cool. And they, when you th- I think back now, they were performing, they were putting on a yes. show. So that's so- And you remember them yes, and you I, learned more from them probably. Oh yeah, because I remember, I remember one lady, Lila Bergman, she was my accounting two teacher. I hated her. She was never showed up to class. And I, and now accounting- The teacher one, never showed, she up showed up to class? If it snowed, she wouldn't show up. So I remember I got accounting one, I got an A, finance one and finance two, I got A's. Accounting two, I got a D because she never showed up. And then she gave us the final and it was all like multiple choice. She'd be like, it's accounting. Aren't we supposed to do ledgers? Who gives multiple choice in accounting? <laughs> a lazy teacher, yeah, exactly. I guess. <laughs> so now you, you, so you, you graduate with your degree in psychology mm-hmm. and now do you have, you would have to get a master's to become a professor or how does that you, work? You would have to get a PhD. I got a master's because I was really unhappy at Brown in the PhD program so I left after my master's thinking I would take a leave of absence and go work for a while and then come back and finish my PhD but after I left uh, 
my I did my leave of absence in Boston and got a job at a healthcare consulting firm, a nine to five job for a couple of years. And I heard on the radio one day that they were having a cattle call for extras in the show Spencer for Hire, that cop drama starring Robert Urich. You know what? Let me interrupt you. This is so funny. My first guest today, yes. Brian Howe, yes. was an actor up in Boston. I know, his, I know him. I remember him. His first gig was he played a cab driver. Not as an actor, he played a cab driver. Because if you're a working actor, you're pretty much a role on that show. Yes. It's just so funny. Now, now, people, that's why Cooper Talk is great. Two Spencer for higher references. Yes. And that was a great show. So and you, I remember Brian. So you, you had the audition. Uh, no, I didn't have an audition. They they were having a cattle call for extras. Okay. You don't audition to be an extra. You stand in line and get your Polaroid taken, and you fill out a little card with your information on it. And about a month later, I got a call from the casting director saying, you know, would you like to do extra work on Spencer Fry or, you know, tomorrow? So I had a nine-to-five job, so I called in sick <laughs> from work. Did you disguise your voice? <laughs> uh, come in tomorrow. And then... Um, I am not a morning person, and I had to wake up, I think, at 5.30 in the morning to go do this show, Spencer Fryer. That was my, my time that I had to wake up so I could get to the set on time. And uh, that was back when people had alarm clocks that plugged into the wall. And I went to sleep, probably late, and because I'm nocturnal, and the power went out in my building, and so my alarm clock did not go off. So I woke up, this is also back in the times that there were home phones, Remember those? And so my home phone rings, and I wake up, and it's, I think it's 6 a.m. or something. It's, oh. it's, it's after I'm supposed to be there, and it's <laughs> Ann Baker, the casting director, and she says, Suzanne, this is Ann Baker. I was wondering if you're planning to show up for work this morning. <laughs> and I'm horrified because, you know, I'm the straight-A student overachieving right. perfectionist Asian, and I, I'm not late to things, and this is supposed to be my first ever acting job now this is non-union so they're going to pay me 40 bucks for the whole day and give me you know right. a bag lunch and say good luck to you so i luckily i can wake up and very quickly be lucid so i say oh my god and my clock radio is flashing 3 a.m the power must have gone out in my building i'm so sorry i'm never late to anything please and the location thank goodness, was really close to where I lived. So she says, you better get here so fast, and she slams the phone down. And I'm thinking, this is a really auspicious beginning for my right. <laughs> acting experience. So I, I have no idea what I, what even clothes I was wearing, and I just threw myself together and ran down the street. Now, if you know anything about television production, nothing was happening by the time I got there. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. So I, it's not like I missed anything, but I had pissed off the casting director, so I made sure to send her a bouquet of flowers and apologize profusely and say this never happens and it'll never happen again and thank you so much for the opportunity which ended up working and while I was there it was so fascinating because I had never been on the set of a television show and I could not believe the hundreds of people in the cast and in the crew and all the equipment and how elaborate everything was and how they would do things over and over again the smallest amount of material from all different angles and Anyway, I was having a great time just experiencing all of it. And this man comes up to me, a character actor named Arnie Cox. He came over to me and he introduced himself. He was probably in his, I don't know, mid-60s and I was in my mid-20s. And he says, who are you? And I said, my name's Suzanne. And he says, I'm Arnie. And he says, how come I haven't seen you around? Because, as Brian Howe knows, at the time, there were probably 50 actors in all of Boston. So they all knew each other. Right. So he knew that I was new. So I said, oh, no, I have a real job. I'm just doing this for fun today. I, I basically insulted him without, exactly. without realizing it. And he didn't get offended by that. He said, no, no, here's what you need to do. He takes a piece of paper and he writes down 10 things. And he says, if you do these 10 things, you'll be acting all the time in this town. Trust me. And I started to, I just trusted him. I started, he was like my guardian angel. I started to do those things. And within one month, I had quit my job. I was in Screen Actors Guild and I was making my living as an actress. What did your parents think about that? Being, I mean, being the over, and I know right. I always, I have, I have, my friend Tom Troy is a Korean actor, yes. and his family's the same. And I, a lot of I've had a comics who are Indians and like or Maz Jabrani or like that. Yes. their parents are like, wait, it's a, it's so, an ex, it's so of course at first they they're thinking, oh no, we're going to have to support her financially for the rest of her life, right? But they're also, they've also been the most supportive, loving. I, I grew up with parents who, first of all, they're still alive, they're still together and in love. They raised me every day of my childhood. They kissed me and hugged me and told me that they love me and that I'm wonderful and that I can accomplish anything that I want to. 
in the world. So when I gave them this news, I think they were they were concerned and they thought, wow, all this Ivy League education, all this money and time and energy put into this. And you're, you know, my mother, I think my mother basically said, you're going to pretend for a living? <laughs> yes, mom, it's going to go great. But I think that very quickly they saw that I was achieving a lot of success at well, an industry that they thought was going to be really difficult. Well, and they, so they were really excited. Yeah, I would think that because they probably thought, you know, I mean, you went to Ivy League school, you know, and, and you're smart and you got into an Ivy League school and you went to another, another Ivy League school. Then you had a job and then you get this. And I think they probably knew you're pretty much going to achieve what you're going to do because yes, you, because you, they you raised me to do that. Yeah, yes. So they're probably thinking, you know what? Yeah, it's not what we want her to do right now. And that's funny, like my parents, you know, I had my degree in business. And when I, my dad was like, comedy, you know, when I started to stand up. But the first time my name was in the paper, he's like, oh, yes. yeah. It's like, oh, wait a second. You know, oh, hey. Yeah. Not only that, my, my parents, in Korean culture, you're not supposed to brag about your kids. And my parents don't care. They got so excited. They would start, you know, showing pictures of, here's here's my daughter with Steve Martin in a movie. Here, you know, they just got so excited about all of it. They, they're my biggest fans. They have flown across the country. They surprised me at the Las Vegas Comedy Fest. Festival, which I ended up winning Best Up-and-Coming Comedian in 2002, I think. They surprised me by flying out to Las Vegas and just showing up for the Comedy Festival. See, that's cool. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. So you're acting in Boston. Yes. And you're getting acting work. Yes, I'm getting acting work. And because, in my case, ignorance was bliss, meaning that... The first 20 auditions I went on, I think I booked 18 of them. Because you didn't care, probably. Because I just was going in to have fun, and no one told me, oh, this is going to be torture and awful and rejection, and it's going to suck. No one said that to me. So I just would go in and have fun, and I was flying by the seat of my pants with natural ability. I'd never studied acting before. And so I started to think that auditions were just the fun thing that you go on before you go on the <laughs> set. And my whole career has sort of reflected that that spirit of going into an audition and just... You know, you're the new kid in school. Hey, nice to meet you. See, How that, are you guys doing? Let's have some fun. And then I would just leave. Well, that's probably exactly. It's probably from your upbringing because you were jumping from school yes. to school. So you're like, oh, you know what? It's the same. You were all. And actually, when you think back about it. New kid in were, school is being an you're you're auditioning. auditioning. You and, absolutely are. And the difference is usually you audition and you get you know, in the group. But for you, you move so much. It's like you're just like, yeah, it's your you're seven all different schools is probably the equivalent of 120, at least 120 of those. Because here an audition is. 30 seconds, two minutes, you know, whatever. Exactly. There, you have to, you have to kick ass. You have to and every dis- different class in school had a different group of people. Right. So every class was a different set of, okay, make new friends or be a wallflower and never have any friends, which is what some people do right. as well. They just sort of isolate and never get to know anyone. So you lived in Boston for six years. I did. Okay. And I was doing little parts on movies and little parts on TV shows and a lot of commercials, a lot of industrials, you know, corporate videos. They like to have that ethnic diversity. Right. So I would participate and be, I would host, I would host um, videos for IBM or Lotus or things Lotus, like that. Lotus, yeah. that's something I was thinking, you know, something I was thinking the other day, like whenever I get like, I'll get a guest that has like an, uh, the email is still at AOL.com. Mm-hmm. I always go, oh my God. Then I was thinking, if I see someone who has Prodigy or Netscape, I'm going to go, wait, because remember they were so big. Even yes. what was that? Uh, X, uh, that was one that came out huge was Zero X or X Zero, or it was like a, a web browser that was like, the phone. everyone's like, this is going to be the big thing. And no one and, can remember yeah, it now. And now. I can't even think of it. <laughs> so now you're in Boston. What Now you moved to New York next. Yes. So now what made you move to New York? Um, I had a friend named Jesse Moore who, if he's listening, hi, Jesse. He uh, he had moved from Boston to New York, and he was signed with a commercial agency called Cunningham Escott Dupini, which was a huge, and still is a huge commercial agency. Okay, this is crazy, because Brian's first agent- Was, this, com- was yes. Cunningham Escott yeah. Dupini. This is like, I swear to God, I have, like, I have, like, I have, I have a, a female Brian. I, That's it's like, right. It's such a, a, a weird thing. In fact, I get stopped on the street all the time, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, Sam Wong. She goes, no, no, no. You're no, not no. Brian Howe? No. Uh, so- he had told me, send your headshot and resume. He's calling me from New York City to Boston saying, send your resume to Carrie Morgan at Cunningham Ascot Dupini. And I kept saying, no, I, you know, I don't want to. I like, you, did, you didn't want to do it or no. you, just, you were happy in Boston? I was big fish, small pond. Okay. I'm ex- I was, I loved Boston. I still love Boston. I've heard it's a great, I mean, I've heard it's, I had a friend who lived I there. I loved it. I heard it, it's great. You could get around anywhere on the T. I loved Fenway Park. I loved the Red Sox. I loved the Celtics. I loved the music scene. It was a young crowd. It was just fun. I had the, I had the best time there. And it was where I became an actress. I, I did improv comedy with a troupe called the Angry Tuxedos at comedy clubs around Boston. Anyway. 
which Boston so, had such a great comedy are scene. Are you kidding? I mean, Louis C.K. was yes. up there. All those. I mean, Barry Katz made that whole scene up there. I mean, he was booking. Goldthwait was up there. Dane Cook. Everyone was Bill up there. Hicks opened yeah. for the Angry Tuxedos once because he just wanted to come and try out some new material there. It was just, See, it was cool. amazing. That's it was amazing. Anyway, so he kept saying, send your headshot to Carrie. And I would say no. And he kept bugging me. So finally, he said, send your headshot to Carrie Morgan and to Carol Nadell, who's a casting director. Why didn't you send that? I mean, I mean, I know you're a big fish, but I mean, it was it, it's such an I opportunity. Because though. I didn't want, I didn't want to. You just wanted to sit there. I just, I, lo- I was having the time of my, I was so happy. Okay. I was booking everything I was auditioning for. I was working full time as an actress, paying all of my bills as an actress. I was probably in love. I loved Boston. Why would I do that? So finally, I just said, fine, just to shut him up. You know, I'll send them down there because because I had no intention of moving. So I send my headshot down there, and the day after I send the headshot to Carol Nadell, who was the casting director, that he said sent two, one to the casting director, one to the agent. Carol Nadell calls and says, "I have an audition for you for an industrial. Can you get down here?" So now, how? So I take an Amtrak train for five hours from Boston to New York City just to go to this audition. And I go to the audition, and as I'm leaving the room, my my plan is to just get back on a right. train. Um, or I could stay with my sister who lived in New York City at the time. So before I leave the room, she runs out and she says, Suzanne, you already got the part. I just can tell you right now, wow. you already have the part. And and I said, oh, okay. And then she says, you really need to, can you stay uh, in New York a, a little, a few more hours? Because you should meet my friend, Carrie Morgan at Cunningham Escatapini. You have to meet with her before you leave. And I say, oh, okay. So like, she, not that Carrie Morgan. <laughs> well, just, you know, what is it with Carrie? You know how the universe keeps right. saying something over it's, and over until you shut up and listen. So she calls Carrie Morgan and says, you have to meet this girl. She's she's visiting here from Boston. You have to meet her. And so Carrie says, okay. Now, I don't know anything about anything. I'm just going, I don't know who Carrie Morgan is or what Cunningham is or anything. So I go and meet with Carrie. And... The first thing she looks at my headshot resume and the first thing she says is, so when are you moving to New York? And I said, I'm not moving to New York. (laughs) And she says, well, then what are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. Jesse Moore wants me to meet with you and Carol Nadell. I don't want to move to New York. And and I think in a weird way, that was refreshing because most actors, when they get a meeting with a big agent, they're so desperate and clingy and they, do you like me? And I'll do anything you say. And I was the opposite. I just said, I don't, I don't want to move here, but other people are forcing me to meet with you. So we have this great conversation because she gets past that. And then she introduces me to all seven of the other agents at the big agency, which I figured that's what happens with everyone right. who meets with the agent. <laughs> I don't know. And by the time I leave to, uh, I ended up staying at my sister's. By the time I get to my sister's, there is a voicemail message on my cell phone from Carrie Morgan saying, well, we voted and it's unanimous. We're signing you. Uh, pack your bags. You're moving to New York City. Wow. That's so, I mean, that's so cool. Cause I mean, and I think it is a resistance thing. Like you said, like from when I first moved out here, you know, I, I wanted to, I said, my friends, you should try to get an agent, you know, you'd be good for commercials. And I said, ah, so I just, and I'd done comedy, but I was, I was out of the business. I was out of the business. I was like, nah, nah, I'm going to concentrate on, you know, maybe trying to write or whatever. And I did the same thing. I just sent out like 10 headshots. And there are people are like, you got to send out at least 100. I'm like, well, it's going to see, you know. And a crappy, like crappy, you know, it was probably my, my old comedy headshot. So it was probably, I was probably at a hand like Richard Lewis and a, and a resume. And Wait, you mean your hand was on your head probably? Because yeah. that's oh, a, yeah. like, no, oi, no, totally, yeah. like oi, like yeah, oi my head. I, I look, yeah. or, no, it might have been, I have one with me of the microphone. I look like a Jewish, and I'm not even Jewish. I look like a, a Jewish uh, wedding singer. But, uh, but I sent out the, and, and someone said, I'll meet with you. And I went in and. I had no idea. Same thing. I had no right. idea. And they're like, guys, like, you know, and I said, you know what? I said, I'll be honest. I said, people say I have a unique, familiar look. They say I'll be, I would probably be, you know, good for, uh, you know, auditions and stuff like that. And, and I leave. And that was it. And then they call me. They go, we want to sign you. And I said to these people, I said, hey, man, I said, should I sign with them? No, I, no, I said it was funny. And they said, we want to, well, they said, we're thinking of signing you. And I said, yeah, well, I have to talk to a few more people. And then. I didn't, but I, I didn't. I was like, yeah. And then the same thing. They go, I think this is what happens. Like with you, they're like, wait a second. This person doesn't give a crap. He's not desperate yeah, to and, sign with and us? That, so they're probably they're probably going, wait a second. Yes. She's going to book because she yes. doesn't care. Yes. And you have a good resume. So you sign with them. So, so anyway, I go back to Boston and I say to some of my friends in Boston who are working actors, I say, so I was just in New York City and some Cunningham Escott <laughs> Dipini wants to sign me. And I don't, I don't know. And they all say, 
Are you kidding me? <laughs> CED wants to, are you insane? Go immediately. So I, I left. So you and get to New York. To, I get to New York. And now what happens when you get to New York? Now, when do you start doing stand-up? I don't do stand-up until L.A. So, okay. so so I'm acting in Boston. I become a television host in New York City. So I'm in New York City not very long. And Cunningham Ascot Tapini gets me out. I, I start booking. My nickname was Booker because just like in Boston, the, the first 20 auditions they sent me on, I think I booked 18 of them. And they were just they couldn't believe it. commercials? Yes. Or what? Cunningham okay. is a commercial so, so what were some of the commercials you did? Do you oh, remember any of them? Who knows? You've done tons. But Grape nuts. I did multi-grain Cheerios. I did a lot of bite and smile. People like to see me eat, apparently. Now, now I've... Where you di- you take the and you go mm, and then you spit it out in a bucket. Are you a good fake eater? Because you know, yes. I, you know, do you know? Chip, Apparently, I'm a good fake eater. Do you know Chip Chinnery? Yes, I know Chip Chinnery. He was on the show years ago, and he said he said he's the best fake eater in Hollywood. Oh he well, said that a few I, years ago. I, I don't want to challenge him. To <laughs> so you get these commercials, so you, and it's cereal, and then you have to spit it out. But yes. and you're probably going. And you're getting paid. I'm getting paid a fortune. It's like, it's great. New York is pretty good. Yes. So now, when did you start the hosting? So I I can't remember how long I was in New York, but not that long. And even though they're a commercial agency, they got me an audition for a television hosting gig on a show called Breakfast Time on FX. And it was going to be a morning show, a live two and a half hour morning show on FX. And they needed four roving reporters, field hosts that would travel the United States and do different live human interest segments. And and so she gets me an audition. Carrie Morgan gets me an audition for this. So I've never, again, ignorance is bliss. I've never done television hosting or auditioned for a television hosting job and she said that she knew that Carrie Morgan knew that even though I had never been a TV host or auditioned for, to be one they wanted someone who had a great personality a lot of energy and enthusiasm who was smart articulate and could think on her feet could improvise and so that was basically what the audition was like you look at the camera and you say hi I'm Suzanne Huang welcome to breakfast time and then maybe improvise some segment where you're moving you know with a handheld camera and a stick mic and anyway next thing I know I I get the job. I get the first TV hosting job I ever auditioned for. It turns out that it's with Tom Bergeron as the main host, and he and I have been friends for for 10 years from Boston because he used to host People Are Talking, a little talk show in Boston, and I was doing the Angry Tuxedos improv comedy troupe, and we knew each other. We were friends. Then we lost touch, and I had no idea when I booked the job that I was going to be working with my old friend Tom Bergeron, and I got to... I went to all 50 states doing some live human interest, fascinating, fun, hilarious. That must have been great segment. just because, I mean, you, you you moved a lot as a kid, but they go to every state. It was fantastic. I mean, and it's on their dime. So you're sitting there yes. going, it's like a vacation. Your, your job paid, was like a vacation. I'm getting paid to travel the country and meet fascinating mm-hmm. people doing amazing things and learn things and have a blast now how long did you do that for i did that for a year and then it got picked up by fox and it became fox after breakfast again starring tom bergeron and he always had a female co-host and and what happened was there was one time when fox after breakfast uh tom and a female co-host the female co-host in the studio if she was ever sick or um out of town on vacation they would pull me off the road and have me be tom's co-host because we had such great rapport so there was one time, I think it was 1997, where it was New Year's Eve, and I'm co-hosting the morning show with Tom. It was it was a national network morning show. this was shot show. in New York. Yes, national network morning show. And Dick Clark came on as the guest because it was New Year's Eve. And me and Tom were sitting on the couch interviewing Dick Clark, and the three of us had great rapport. But it was about a 10-minute interview. And... Nice to meet you. Goodbye. Cut to one year later. I have moved from... So what got me from New York to Los Angeles was I booked a job on Lifetime co-hosting a show called New Attitudes that was a magazine format show, half an hour on every single night. And they were going to pay me, I think, $15,000 a week. And I said, let me think. Yes, yeah. I'd like to do that. But I didn't want to move to L.A., so I had a wake. Instead of having a, a going away party, I had a wake because I was so depressed to leave New York City and move to Los Angeles. Why? I did, because I'm an East Coast I girl. Too, but and like, I thought L.A. is filled with, oh, my God, I'm so plastic, yeah, that, and I'm stupid, and I'm shallow, and I, I'm an actress. When I moved out here, I thought the same thing. But then now it's like, it's funny because for me, you know, being an East Coast person most of my life, I lived out on the West Coast for 15 years around then. 
but I noticed then because I was with my girlfriend who lives out here now. You know, I was by coastal for uh, two years, and I would go back there at least. I flew back at least twenty times. I would go back at least once, you know, a month, sometimes for two weeks. And I noticed I really like the East Coast, but then when you're sitting there and you get out and it's freezing, and I miss the fall. Right, I, I, miss, I, miss, the, I miss the fall a lot. Fall's the most romantic season and it's just nice. It is, but when there's you come nothing out like here, fall in New England. It's like when I look on the thing and it's, I see on Facebook today, my friend's I going, know, it's oh, it's snowing, and I'm going, that's 80. You know, yeah, it's like, I do love the weather and I've carved out a good life for myself, but for the first two years I was thrashing around because I would rather someone say fuck you to my face than after I leave the room. Right. Now, where did you, I always ask people when they move from the East Coast, where did you first move when you came out? Now, you had a job. I lived so you at could the li- Oakwood on Barham. Oh my I God. I lived at the, in a corporate housing complex on Barham. That's right up the street. That place yes. is, I, there's a documentary about that actually. and It's, it's called the Jokewood. It's where divorced people go before they apparently. And, well, I've heard what's great about the Oakwood is it's a lot of people like you need somewhere to look and yeah I needed somewhere and to look a lot of actors and I heard a lot of guys in bands like I know people live there said you can go to the pool and exactly you can see an old divorced guy you can see a guy with long hair and tats everywhere <laughs> you can see a child who's in like some sitcom with his mom right. you know, trying to get him to go for that's, the audition that's right that's so, right so you move there so that so, wasn't so a anyway, good taste anyway so I moved to LA and I'm living in LA and I'm hosting New Attitudes and I get a call from my agent at William Morris who was my hosting agent at the time saying hey, I'm negotiating your contract to be Dick Clark's co-host on Bloopers on NBC. And, wow. and I say, what? Because I have not auditioned for that. I don't even know what he's talking about. And I said, what? I haven't auditioned? There wasn't even a meeting? or. And he says, I don't know what to tell you. Do you want me to insist on an audition? Because they're just <laughs> offering it to you. And I said, no, no, it's fine. So apparently what happened was uh, NBC told Dick Clark that they didn't want him to have Ed McMahon anymore as his co-host, that they wanted him to have a young, attractive, hip, fun, female co-host. And after one year of only having met him once for 10 minutes and never speaking to him again, he says to NBC, find that woman, Suzanne Wong, from Fox After Breakfast and offer it to her. Wow. Oh, my God. Now, just so you know, do you know how many people in Hollywood must have hated you? <laughs> just No, I mean, because you, I mean, you you, you, you're, it's one of the things, you've had a great career, and it's, it's come with, I mean, on your part... Not a lot of effort. I mean, you've gotten, I mean, you know when you go to right. work, you, you do it, and you're an overachiever, so they probably know, and they can probably tell yes. you. But I mean, it's just so funny, it's just how the path works. I mean, he meets you for 10 minutes. Right. I mean, mo- he's Dick Clark. He meets everybody. Yes, and he's, he remembered. And that's amazing. And clocked it, and filed it away, and, and, and that was part of his You brilliance. don't even need an audition. No, because he knew it was going to work. So. He let me ad-lib, he let me improvise, he let me make fun of him. It was glorious. I had the best time working on that show. So you moved out here for the one show. And, and then I you... end up doing two shows, okay. and then both of them ended, and and then I got the job hosting House Hunters on HGTV, which lasted for almost ten years. Yeah, now, how'd that come about? Just because, first of all, HGTV was—I uh, mean, I mean, it was—it was a newer network, and and I'm sure that whenever you go into a job in a newer network, you know, and a hosting job, because shows are so, you know, shows stop. Did you ever think that the show would last for ten years? I mean, no, especially you know, not in a million years. First of all. It's not a show that I would watch, Okay, but I, I understand why it became the number one show. The reason it became the number one show is because part of the American dream is to own your own home. So it's going to appeal to a wide variety, a wide cross-section of people. Number two is that there's a voyeuristic peeping Tom quality to it because you know that there are times when you've passed an open house sign and you have no intention and no money to buy that house, but you pull over and go in. Why? Because you want to see what it looks like inside. I've and always- that's why people watch House Hunter as well I've always wanted to go for the snacks <laughs> no because I have a friend of mine she's a realtor and she posts like open house with wine and I, and I know if I showed up she'd be like Cooper wait, what are you, you doing you, 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 I just, I'm here for the wine it's just like in that movie I love you man right. with Jason Siegel and Paul Rudd where Jason Siegel just shows up because right. it's great right. it's so, great spread so now was it a long audition process for this no I think I was basically offered I think I had a meeting but I was basically offered it it, it there reaches a point, I guess, when it comes to television hosting where your audition is people have seen you hosting other things because I had I had already a few shows, I mean, with Dick Clark I'd and ar- with the Lifetime and, and, with- and with FX and with Fox. So sometimes your audition is people have seen you on other things and they know that you'd be good for it. So I think I just had a meeting for that. And it became it it's really what put me on the map. I mean, I had been in the public eye since 1994, but it wasn't until 
98, I guess, or 99, when I started hosting House Hunters, that I could walk into a room and people would scream and run up to me because it became the number one show on the network. Yeah, because I was thinking, because also, it's like anything, like that show is one of those that the, the viewers are very religious. It's like they're, Star Trek. They're or like that. Like so people, loyal. They've they, seen every episode right. more than one time. And to you, I mean, they must, it's it's like, it's for like me to meet, you know, Bruce Springsteen. Like, oh my God, you know. Yes. But for them, because I know every album, for I'm them. I'm somebody's Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen. Yeah, it's I mean, so weird. Now, how did you adjust to that? Because, I mean, you were probably recognized from your other shows. Yes, but, it but was not actually easy for me because it was sort of gradual for me. I had had a certain amount of fame and I had had fan mail and people recognizing me. So, so it wasn't like I went from nothing to right. craziness. But and the, the the place that it happens the most is in airports because at airports there are people from all over the country in the same place at the same time but when someone would run up to me screaming i would immediately think that there's a spider on me or something <laughs> like i don't i don't think to myself they're screaming because they're excited <laughs> to meet me but it was more intense actually when i was on morning television because there's something about being on television every morning that makes people believe that you're their best friend because they're in their pajamas do you know what i mean watching you in the every morning there's an intimacy that's different from i don't know yeah. ho hosting a different type of a show well, it is weird it's, it's so funny because as, as you know you said with that show and it's also like you know with the soap operas like i had tao Panglis on the show and yes i know I, him too when i tweeted I oh my god i had i had these w older women retweeting that oh you gotta Flipping listen to out. cooper talk i listened to it two times and because then uh, this four the 405 media plays my show which is very funny because i just i saw they played different internet radio shows and it's a very conservative station so and i have these conservatives follow me but my uh, most performers are liberal but we never talk about politics but so but these people were saying re, you know, repeating the four and uh, like it was amazing because the the crowd that he has the following the people just they're like with your house on the house the, hunters yeah, the house hunters they just i mean they're devout and it's so funny and they're great fans and the thing is i mean i'm guessing like the soap opera they're not the creepy fans they're like sort of harmless they probably like instead of sending you like a black rose they would send you like cookies <laughs> yes they are wholesome but here's what surprised me house centers fans were of both genders of all age range of uh ethnic distribution i mean it was just anybody i remember being at some hollywood party and this guy that looks like a gangster rapper came over and said are you suzanne wong <laughs> and i said yes and he goes i love your show and i'm thinking you you watch my show you and your blinged out right. you know pimps and hoes and stuff so you, you be watching cribs and no. i just thought <laughs> like and i also remember getting um emails from people saying that their little toddler billy watches house hunters and i'm thinking is billy in the market for right. i don't get it and they said the sweetest thing they said no billy doesn't really understand uh what's going on but billy likes you and he likes your face and he likes your voice and he just likes you, so he likes watching House Hunters because he's he likes you. And I thought, oh, that's that's great. That's though. so sweet. But that's as a host. That's the thing you want to. Uh, so, I mean, it's if anyone you know, if they look at you, if a little kid likes you, you think about kids. They get gravitated towards something that makes them feel secure and warm. So if yeah. a kid's looking at you like that way, that's, that's like a that's like that's thing. like a great compliment. Even though some people it's a little a kid likes you, it's, it's a, a great, great compliment. compliment. And I remember they asked me if I would send him an autographed eight by ten for his birthday. So I sent you know, dear Billy, happy birthday. Thanks for watching the show Suzanne and I mailed it so then I get an email with they send me a photo of Billy looking at the photo with the biggest smile you've ever seen on a kid's face and it just could make me cry that's it's so cool just so that's so cool. So as you're hosting, when do you start doing stand up? Because because okay. because I would just say real quick that with the hosting it must be hard because Greg Barrett was on a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and you know he went from being a comic for a long time then to being a to host. host and then I went writing the book. And yeah. he said for him, people it was hard for him because people were like, "Wait, you're not you're not the guy who's doing. She's just not into you. You're that, that's not what we're going to hear." But what is wrong with people? You can't be more than one thing. Those, I started as an actor, then I became a TV host, and then I became a stand-up comedian. So now, what made you want to get into stand-up? So. I had been acting at that point for many years, and as a TV host, I eventually missed acting. So I left House Hunters, <coughs> and uh, I, I- You left, you just said- I, I left after almost 10 years. But you had a spinoff of House Hunters, It was House Hunters International, I did that too for years. How was that? Because you got, all, got to go over all over 
oh no, you don't know how reality television works. I did only the wrap rounds, and I was di- I did everything here, and oh. then they sent segment producers all over the world. But people say, oh, how terrible! No, it's not terrible. I got to contain continue acting and be in L.A. I could do seven episodes in half a day. Okay, so so, so it was great, and. D- uh, we couldn't even, even if they wanted to, they couldn't have me in 10 different locations at the same time. They would have a team of segment producers right. filming all over the world. And so it gave me the opportunity to still host the show, but then I could do the acting things I wanted to do. So I, I was studying acting again because I, you know, I like to, I like to realize that you're never done becoming better at anything. I don't think you have have tenure as an actor. You can always benefit from a, a workshop or a class or a tune-up. So I was studying acting at the Beverly Hills Playhouse uh, at the Skylight Theater in Los Feliz. And uh, they would encourage their students to not just bring in scenes from plays and movies or do Shakespeare, but to also bring in stuff that you write if you want to. And one woman in class brought in, uh, she did a monologue that she wrote that was just a true story from her life about being a rockette in New York City and going insane because she became a rockette to become a big star and then she realized that you don't become a big star when you're a rockette because the whole point is to blend in right. and not stand out. And she was talking about how she thought that um, Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine were her vampire parents and they were going to come rescue her. And she was she she said that she ended up in an insane asylum. Anyway, she's telling the story and the teacher says this should become a stand-up comedy routine. And I'm thinking to myself, I have funny stories from my life. So I signed up to do stand-up comedy in this acting class once just to cross it off my bucket list because I'm an adrenaline junkie. So I've been skydiving, hang gliding, bungee jumping, parasailing. I'll do anything once. Me? None of them. None of them. So I thought, stand-up comedy. What's more terrifying to most people than to do stand-up comedy and risk everyone just staring at you in silence right so I decided I would do it so I wrote a bunch of material about uh, stupid shit people say to Asian women because I've traveled all over the United States and I know I look like this but I was born in Virginia and I grew up watching like you probably the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family so when you come up to me and say oh your English is so good I'm thinking, thanks, I learned it in Virginia, you know, idiot. That is funny, because it's like, for me, my roommate from college was from Hong Kong. So, But we, we as we say, we Americanized him, because he came straight from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But even even after, like, you know, four years, because he was very smart, people would do the same stuff. They'd be like, you know, it'd be like coming up and saying stuff. And you're like, no, the guy's in, co-, you know, he's he's in college. <laughs> and, I know he's, and he was a math major. I mean, it's like, I know he's a math major, but I said, he understands English because he's in college. Yes. And my college was almost you all- you know, it was a New Jersey State College. There wasn't a lot of Asian kids there. And it's so funny because the way people talk, they think People that- would say, Korea, is that in China? <laughs> or you're Korean. Do you know Kim? Or can you teach me karate? Or how does that dry cleaning process work, Suzanne? How do you answer people when they say that? Like, I mean... It depends on the mood I'm in. It depends on the context and who I'm around. I think when the woman said, how does the dry cleaning process work? I said, oh, I cannot tell you ancient Korean secret. <laughs> I mean, what do you say? Exactly. It's, it's just, it's, it's so funny. And that's the funny thing is people wouldn't ask, like people wouldn't ask me like, oh, hey, how do you make waffles? You know, it's like, right. it's just amazing how they sit Imagine, there. and I remember being in New York City even, and some guy walked by me on the street and went, hey, Mugu Gai Pan. And I'm thinking, what? First of all, that's a Chinese <laughs> food. And second of all, what? Like, would I go up to a white guy and say, hey, hostess Twinkies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or a black guy and say, collard greens, right. ha ha. What? It's, it's so, people are so People stupid. are so stupid. And so I basically went on a rant about stupid shit that's been said to me. And I would play the different characters that were saying the things to me and my response. And people were flipping out. They were laughing so hard. And so my <clears throat> teacher says to me, Okay, so that was great, and now you have to go do this in comedy clubs. And I said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This was my bucket list item. I've done it. It went well. I'm going to cross it off. And he says, no, you actually have an intelligent, uh, unique voice, and you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to go and do this. He said, the only suggestion I would make is that you embrace the stereotype of Asian women that you hate so much. And I said, what? That's a terrible idea. I've spent my whole life proving to everyone that I'm nothing like that. And he said, exactly. Whatever you resist persists. Whatever you defend against, you make more powerful. He said, by, by resisting it, it, 
you're at the effect of it. What if you embraced it as part of your artistic palette, not all of it, just to see what happens? And I was furious. I thought, I'm plotting his death. I'm going to quit class. He used to be a great teacher. Now he's an idiot. And I went home and I realized it's insane to take a class and not even try what the teacher who's proven to be brilliant in the past has suggested. So I better fully try this idea before I decide whether he's an idiot and I should quit class. So the next morning, I was still livid. And I thought, I don't want to embrace the stereotype of Asian women that I hate so much. I don't want to do it from the inside out. So I took a a note from the British actors who like to work sometimes from the outside in, where if they have the right hat or the right cane or the right pair of shoes or the right outfit, it could inform and infuse the character. So I decided to go to Koreatown and I bought a hanbok, which is a full-length traditional fancy Korean dress that women wear. I bought a Korean dress and a Korean fan and traditional Korean canoe-shaped shoes, and I just bought all the stuff and I came home and I put it on. And I just stood there livid in my house wearing the dress until an idea came to me because all he said was try embracing the stereotype that you hate and then I eventually I'm usually not a patient person I stood there long enough to wait for an idea and finally this idea came to me what if she were a stand-up comedian What if she's fresh off the boat from Seoul, South Korea? What if English is not her first language? What if she's terrible at it? What if she's nervous? What if she's so nervous that if it doesn't go well, she's going to cry on stage or she'll go home and kill herself? What if she doesn't know she's supposed to write her own material so she just copies down phonetically? (laughs) What if she doesn't realize that the, the jokes she's copying down phonetically are racist or vulgar or offensive and then I started to get excited because now it became a satire of racism and stereotypes and prejudice in America and I wanted to make it a satire of stand-up comedy I wanted to make fun of the the act of doing stand-up by doing it all wrong and it sort of became like Latka on taxi if he were to do stand-up he would do it all wrong and the humor (coughs) would come from the fact that she doesn't know what the hell she's doing and I got excited about it so I wrote 10 minutes of that and I went back to class and I did it and it is why I won the Las Vegas Comedy Festival's Best Up-and-Coming Comedian Award. I then won the first annual Andy Kaufman Award at the New York Comedy Festival. And it's it led to me getting a part on Las Vegas on NBC playing a similar character. It became a four-season role. It was supposed to be a one-day tiny part, but because of Vanessa Marcel, who was one of the stars of the show, who's now my best friend, she thought I was so funny that she told the director, give her a free take now that she's done. Let her improvise and ad lib. And the director said, okay. And I'm thinking, what's happening right now? So they treated me like I was Jim Carrey or, you know, Robin Williams, and it became a four-season role. Now, when you did the character... Yes. When you did it at comedy clubs... Yes. I was you, terrified. No, but would you go up as that character? Yes. So you were introduced never, as that character? Okay. Never break character. See, I love stuff like that. I used to do a nerd character, and then there used to be a comic back east named uh, Klaus Myers, who would do his first half of his act, because he's very Nazi-looking. Mm-hmm. And he'd do it as number, Germany's number one comedian, and he would do it. And people, then he would break character in the middle, and it was always great to see, because he's doing a 45-minute set, it was always great to see people's face going, oh, oh my God. But that's so cool because that takes so much balls to go on stage to do a character because anything I think when you do comedy is, you know, if you don't get a laugh, you know, like when I get out of it for a long time, when I do it now, it's like, if I don't go, if I want to tell stories, if I'm telling a story, it's not working. Well, I'll revert to the stuff that can laugh. But as a character, you can't. And that's, that's I mean, and especially for being new to yes. do it. I mean, that must- But the premise is actually foolproof because the premise is, ladies and gentlemen, coming to the stage, this is, she's brand new to the United States. It's her first time ever doing stand-up comedy, so please be nice to her, all the way from Seoul, South Korea. Welcome, Sunghee Park. And so it's already been set up that I'm going to be terrible. And then... If I bring my I bring my set list onto the stage and I'm shaking behind this fan, and if I tell a joke and it goes well, great. If I tell a joke and it doesn't go well, I get upset and I cross it off the okay. set list, and then they laugh at that. Now, does anybody recognize you though? Like, do they sit there and they go, "Wait a second, that's the that's the person"? From- no, because I am I'm. Even though I'm not doing anything other than putting on the dress and putting my hair in a ponytail, people who even know me come and they say it's as if I've put on prosthetic makeup because they don't even know who that and you're is. And the character. I mean, yes. it's not it's not because they know you as you and then you sit there and it's so funny. Yes, they really, people just get caught up in it. And 
I, I love the fact that I, I've been using my acting chops. It's sort of like I'm doing a performance art theater piece, but I happen to be doing it in a comedy club. But I'm I'm fully playing the character. I'm not winking at the audience. Do you know what I mean? There's no, I'm doing a caricature. This is fake. This is a joke. I'm doing, I'm playing for keeps to the point where at, at the end of my act, I take it to a place of pathos where I get choked up on stage and everyone, you can hear a pin drop and everyone is getting, welling up and thinking, what's happening right now? And then I turn it right back on a dime. Now, how do you write crappy material? It must be, I mean, that's the funny thing is writing bad material is harder than writing good material. And that must be a challenge for you too because you have to sit there and you come up with an idea and you go, God, this is so funny. And you're thinking, well, I can't use this. This is too funny. Well, what, what I do is, first of all, I, I just take jokes that other people wrote because that's one way of doing it wrong is some okay. really, you know, oh, I flew in from Korea and the boy is in my arm tired. You know, like some, some sort of old hack, Henny, Henny Youngman, Youngman yeah. kind of thing. You know, just one-liner jokes that have just been circulating around the internet. And so that's part of the joke is that I'm not supposed to do that, right? But then um, I... I uh, I, I, there's a one, there's one joke that I also didn't write, which is, uh, how can you tell if a Korean broke into your house? How how can you? Oh, uh, your dog is missing and the homework is done. That's that's not and that's funny. And that's and that's funny. But if I did that, that joke, I, I would I would right. get persecuted. I mean, because that's right. funny because I tweet a lot. And I always say to my girlfriend, I go, "Do you think this is this is offensive?" And and and, and it's not. And I think I shouldn't think that because I, I tweeted. I said, you know, I said, do African Americans use the uh, do African American cannibals use the website? black people meet because you know because it's but it's spelled differently right and then she's like that's not and i always ask her because you know she's pretty you know she's she knows and it's, it's funny but for you you can say anything which is cool i can say anything <coughs> and in fact <clears throat> the opening line just so you have to imagine me in the pink dress shaking and nervous behind the fan and i it takes me forever to get my set list set up and the, the microphone's too high and I'm shaking. So just imagine one of the rules of comedy is run right out with lots of energy and start talking. So I'm going to do the opposite of that. I'm going to come out tentatively and take forever and shake. And so the audience, the part, the people that are buying that this is my first time are just in excruciating pain and they're thinking this is going to be awful and I want to leave. And I eventually lift up two fingers, I hold up two fingers and people start laughing thinking it's a peace sign. And my opening line is, two nigger walking into bar. And everyone's, everyone gasps and says, wait a minute, what did she say? And they're laughing. So Sunghee Park gets startled and doesn't understand like why they would be laughing. And she looks down at her set list and says, oh, no, sorry, sorry. One nigger walking into bar. And then it's, it's, it's a ridiculous joke. And... I was nervous the first time I did this in a comedy club because I was afraid that I would get followed to my car and beaten up. Right. So I made sure a bunch of friends came with me. But th the truth is I did it at the comedy store. No, I did it at Luna Park. Do you remember Luna Park? Yeah, I wasn't, yeah. I did it at Luna Park. And it was the black people that came up to me first and said, that was so funny. Thank you so much. Do you break character after the show? Uh, yes, okay. I break character. Okay, excuse me, because the people, so the people know. But some people come up to me still and go, "Congratulations!" <laughs> but do you, do you break character when you're leaving the stage, or no? You, no. Okay, so I've, after. Tri I've tried it, and people don't like it because yeah. they feel like I'm killing her. Yeah, I, in front I, of them, they don't I, like it. When I used to do a character, and I would switch, they don't people, like it, and people don't like you. They go, "What?" Like yeah. they love the character, and they yeah. go, ah, they don't like same you. thing." We have about five minutes left. You're kidding? You know, that flew by. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about? Uh, I know you're you're writing a book about your breast cancer. Yes, I'm. I'm a stage four breast cancer thriver who's now completely cancer free. I'm writing Good. a book about it, and I did a lot of Western, Eastern, alternative, holistic, spiritual lessons. I changed what I eat, what I drink, what I think, but I had to really learn to throw pride and ego out the window and go public and slow down and ask for and receive help and love because every woman I've ever met with breast cancer has had a history of saving and fi fixing and rescuing and helping everyone but themselves until they collapse and not taking care of themselves, not nurturing themselves. So that was the lesson that I had to learn and that's what I'm writing the book about. I also, one of my passions right now is I'm teaching an ongoing art artist workshop called The Playing Field for actors, singers, comedians, writers, dancers, rappers, poets, 
uh, professors because you know those are performers yes. maybe lawyers who have to give opening and closing everyone statements. i mean so many salesmen everyone everybody you know, everyone's performs everyone a waiter is, performs right everyone who wants to communicate in front of a group of people at a higher level and so it's this magical place where it's a safe sacred fun space where a community of like-minded amazing talented creative people come together and the beginning of it for the first half hour i lead us in some sort of we might do an improv game or I might give a writing exercise or we might watch something and discuss it or we might go outside or, you know, I might bring Play-Doh in and we'll sculpt or something just to get people in their bodies, in the moment, in the creative flow and maybe in a state of childlike wonder. And then each artist gets up and I give them seven minutes to bring whatever they want to bring. An actor might do a monologue, a singer might sing a song, someone might do a tap dance or give it part of a keynote speech or juggle or whatever they want to do. And then I will give them a one-on-one -on -one coaching session because I have experience in so, so many, many different, different areas yeah. yes <clears throat> and the whole community gets to benefit from the one-on-one -on -one coaching session that I'm doing <clears throat> and I've been doing this for two years now and I really do believe Maya Angelou said there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you and this is a place a safe place to tell your story in whatever artistic way that comes out and I really believe too that unexpressed emotions and unexpressed creativity lead to illness injury accidents bankruptcy betrayal you know unhappiness and so this is a, a place where people can come in the spirit of fun and there's no doing it wrong you know there's pl plenty of places where the teacher has a huge ego and is uh, verbally and emotionally abusive and comedy bookers have the huge e it's same and they're gonna tear you down and then build you back up this industry has enough of the tearing down I wanted to create an antidote to the classes where people would say go home and slit your wrists you're a terrible actor thinking that that's somehow helpful right and so this is and there's if that's what you need and want there's plenty of those but this is a place where whatever you bring in I'll blow on the embers of what you've brought in to help you find your unique voice and basically unzip your soul now are you still doing stand-up I, I do stand up once in a while. It's not as my, my favorite thing. Now I prefer, I think we were just talking about it, spoken word storytelling events. So I I do sit and spin and taboo tales and don't tell my mother and I love a good story. I, I should get you in touch with, uh, uh, do you know Christine uh, Blackburn? I just did. She's story worthy. Yeah, I, just, I, I just did it. I just did her live show yeah. uh, a week, two weeks ago. Yeah, I told I my whole story about my journey with cancer on story worthy. Have, have you done her live show? Uh, no, I've never done her. It's, a, it's at IO West. It's uh, you should hit her up. She's great. She was just on the show last week. Yeah. I love story because you got me doing the story because I don't want to do stand up anymore. And the stories I love them. I'm writing, actually writing a book. I have about eight stories that are just they're funny, and I'm not. I'm, I mean, they're just stuff that happened to me. And it's weird because I the way I think as I write them, side stories come in because mm -hmm. I, I I pontificate. I, I go I go off a lot. But now, any more hosting coming up? Or are you no, but I'm starring in a sitcom called From Here On Out on Here TV. It's a cable subscription network, and it's the funniest role I've ever read, much less been able to play. I play a crazy character named Davina. And so if you have Here TV, you can watch it. Or if you can go on, YouTube has a Here TV premium channel, and it's called From Here On Out. And now what's the show about? Um, it's a show within a show. Okay. It's an all-gay network, if you don't know what Here TV is. So the show within the show is, it's about the shooting of a show called Guy Dubai, International Gay Spy. Okay. And Davina is a wannabe actress who's a maid. And she crashes the audition for this show because she finds out that they're in desperate need of a location. And she offers, she's a maid for this Beverly Hills mansion and the owners are out of town. So she says, I have a place where you can shoot for free. Okay. But you have to give me a part. And she's a terrible actress. So I get to play it. So Davina is fresh off the boat from Korea. Imagine Davina playing a Scottish barmaid named Fiona. She's doing a terrible Scottish accent mixed with her Korean accent, and she's a bad actress. I got to check that out. Um, people, check that out. Now, give your contact info, your Twitter and all that Twitter stuff. Twitter is at Suzanne Huang, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-W-H-A-N-G. I'm on Facebook as well, and my website is SuzanneHuang.com. And do you, have, do you have your comedy clips on your website? I do. So we can go check you them can, out. Yes, and you can YouTube me and Google me and all that stuff. And so when we check out. The, so yeah, please check her out and follow her on Twitter. And I, I'm going to check that. I think I have the here. And I've eight, I just switched to ATT Uverse. Uverse. I might have it. I don't know. You get so many channels. I know. And then the thing is, bummed me out was they got rid of the, when I went from Charter. They got uh, they got rid of the Hallmark. ATT didn't have the Hallmark channel. Uh, mm -hmm. And I like to watch all those cheesy Christmas movies. You do because they just play, like every once in a while. Because people you I mean, know like are like what in, like a Christmas story. Well, no, no, like the ones that have like like the ones with like you know Victoria Principal and whatever. Like yes. Those, like, but there was things because. 
because some people I talk to actors who say they do them because they get paid so well and it's an easy job. Anyway, so people check her out, go to her website and uh, and look at their comedy and send her an email. And uh, yeah, and also don't forget follow me at Cooper Talk on Twitter. I tweet a lot. Also, I'll be tweeting about my cookbook which will be coming out in the next two months. Uh, Stop the salt. So we'll check that out. Also, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 325 episodes up on there. And email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. I always respond. Go to iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word. That's Cooper Talk, and you can find all my episodes up there. And also, I want to give a shout-out to a few stations, the405media.com. Check them out. They play my show. WSDICHicago.com. They also play my show. Rant Radio Network plays my show, and they're great guys over there. I'm forgetting someone. Uh, oh, All Radio X. It's a great, cool episode. They put great shows. And don't forget, uh, this Saturday, I start playing on Wildfire Radio out of my home base, South Jersey. I'm from Cherry Hill, but they're out of Collingswood. So keep listening. Check out Suzanne. Suzanne, check out her website. Check me out at Cooper Talk. And don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, be careful, have a great new year, and I will talk to you guys next week. I hate that.